welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, Episode 28, Going Home. Resentments, challenges, and opportunities. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is uh, episode twenty-eight, as far as as high as we can count, and we're using all our fingers and toes to come up with that. And it is August twelfth, uh, two thousand seventeen, and here we are on the journey of integral recovery. And um, there's so much to um, to talk about. But something we had a conversation with you earlier, uh, Bob. Uh, I think about a week ago or so, and uh, talked about visiting uh, family and going home or however that works. And often that is a really a stressful thing, okay? And for for many reasons, and it can be an issue if you are in early sobriety or even advanced sobriety. And, you know, I mean, uh, somewhere along the way, but people expect you to be like you used to be or they, you know, they're, they're really into drinking, or there's huge political differences, or there's vast religious, you know, spaces, and, and it can be really, really difficult, and it can be um, uh, really hard, and, uh, you know, I've talked about this earlier, but Ken used to say, if you think you're enlightened, go home for the holidays, you know, and uh, family's great like that. I mean, they can really push all your buttons and get you going. And my, my one refuge has been in family business is to practice more than I normally do. And because maybe I'm just, you know, just a fragile flower here, but I find that in times of real stress to that, I really have to practice more and I just, I just make it happen. And I've also learned always have your own vehicle. When you uh, go to a family reunion, I made that mistake once and it was, it was really, really painful and uh, that I couldn't take a break and get away and go work out or do something that I needed to do for myself. So I don't know, Bob, if you want to chime in on that and because uh, it was up in our conversation. Last yeah. Week. Yeah. I'd love to, to, to chime in here and love to hear from you too, Doug. Uh, the, the conversation I had with John uh, centered around an experience I had, which is in some ways singular. I, I think it's going to be memorable across a, a lifetime for me where I was with relatives that, that, uh, Oftentimes there's been frustration in terms of the, I'm going to use the, the, the idea of levels or of stages, just sure. being at different levels of uh, different worldviews that are really under, made understandable through understanding, I think, spiral dynamics. And what happened, I'll, I'll address this to Doug because we've talked about it, John, is that there was one evening in a long drive with family members where, for whatever reason, I, there was this dispensation of grace that came through me where I was able to be with them with uh, uh, near complete uh, uh, curiosity and even empathy uh, without remainder. And so it was really striking to me to be with them and, and to recognize in the same moment that I'm being empathically present that there will be no reciprocity here. And to just be with that. And I don't know when I've held both those polarities quite that way. Um, the truth of the matters I shared with you, John, was that when I got home that night, I was exhausted 
uh, and, and also felt very lonely. So it isn't, it isn't like this is all love and light. <laughs> it wasn't the moment, but there was a fairly significant shadow kind of aftertaste after this. But I won't forget that experience of how it's possible to be with somebody. Um, these, and it's, it, it's not just a stranger, like a gas station attendant. It's like this is family to be with them to somehow without, I don't even know, the only will that there was involved in here was a decision that if I don't say something, they won't speak to me. So there, there was a decision there that if we're going to have any conversation, it will require my inquiring with, uh, with uh, openness, curiosity, and compassion, let's say. But once that decision was made, the rest of it felt really great. I have to tell you, John, it just, um, and Doug, it didn't feel like I was willing it. And that's what made it amazing. So as it was happening, I was just kind of stunned. It was like, is this the first time with such intimate family members that I've ever had this generosity come through me where I can completely be with them, inhabit their world with them so much so that they begin to come alive with, with the joining. Yeah. And, and there's not in that moment also some kind of growing resentment about why aren't they fucking asking me about my life? <laughs> and I, it's just, there was, it was, it was an evening's worth of that. And as I say, I came home and really felt the, the in, a, in a sense, the pound of flesh that requires, yeah. but uh, I won't forget either part of that. And maybe it's the, the necessity of both parts, but I have to tell you, maybe to follow on what you said, John, is that in that kind of hollow longing, emptiness, depleted aftermath, that would have been a place in the past that I would have used. I was very clear about that uh, uh, that evening, is that this yeah. is the place where I would have reached for a bottle or something to alter state of consciousness. And instead, I just had to stay with it. It was very uncomfortable. It was a sleepless night, to be honest with you. It was really hard to hold that feeling right on the heels of having been blessed, I believe, with with compassion. And, and how, how, are you do, how are you doing with that now? You know, it's been, what, a week, 10 days or something? Yeah, it took about a day or two for that to pass, enough so for me to kind of find my equilibrium. I can't remember because I didn't time it, but it, I, I think part of what aggravated it, it made it more difficult, is the very next day we were back together again, and I didn't feel that same dispensation of grace. I just felt like, oh, man, this is really It's really hard. It's really hard. So it was like, it was kind of like, but that evening there was something, you know what it does for me, Doug and John? It opens up for me hope that it's possible that there could be that kind of generosity of heart and spirit that would be unfeigned. I mean, it was absolutely real. It's very effective in terms of kind of bodhisattva, loving Mm -hmm. presence, and that I'm a human being. And so I'm going to have to bear some of the the burden of that. But maybe over time, I could develop more uh, uh, strength or endurance to be able to tolerate that. This was like a first... This is a first dip into something that feels like a brand new, I really meant it when I said it, it's like another dispensation that I know very little about. Well, you know, I think that the, the interior work that we do, you know, the developing the witness self, the observer yes. self, where you can yeah. just look at your own stuff, you know, yeah. with yeah. with just yeah. curiosity and openness, yeah. non-judgmental. I think that is mm-hmm. perhaps a, um, uh, a skill that could translate to our, you know, to people outside of ourselves and especially people that are really on different, you know, different uh, wavelengths or yeah. mimetic stages, you know, or yeah. values what they value the most. Yeah. I would, I, I think it does help. Yeah. And I, I think when we blow it, it also helps us to come back to center and, and clean up our messes if we have to. I, I find myself apologizing a lot sometimes. Yeah. Let me, let me mention something that I mentioned to John, Doug, is that uh, it's, it's a bit embarrassing to admit here online, but it's the truth is that when I was back visiting, 
uh, in the Midwest, let's say, I, uh, I failed to meditate. I, uh, it, it had to do with the circumstances uh, where it was easy to forget a daily practice for me. It wasn't just being in different circumstances, but the time difference as well as just kind of the, the environmental demand. But John, you, you put your finger on this when we talked about it last week was, how'd it go with your practice, Bob? Well, <laughs> uh, so to your point, John, is that the development and the cultivating of the witness self, whatever took me through that, I, I really do believe, John, that's what was going on. It felt like there was a witnessing going on with a non-attachment. And that surely would have been fueled by the momentum of all the practice. But while I was back there, what difference might it have made instead of that night going home and mourning alone, but bookending that whole experience with some serious practice. Like you say, John, to double it up. Well, I, I, I zeroed it out, is what I did. So there's a, there's a lesson there for me, yeah. yeah. And, and Doug, you know, you've shared a lot about, well, not a lot, but more than most, you know, in a public forum mm-hmm. about your past and, you know, yeah. your struggles yeah. and, and, and getting sober and, and, and the, the work that you're doing now. How does that reflect now, you know, with your family when you go back for either with your wife's, you know, the in-laws and outlaws and, and your own family, what, what is that like for you? Well, it's a, almost an opposite experience for me. It's not quite the opposite, but I'm aware of myself very differently because I had spent a lot of time um, in the depths of my disease living back at home with my family. And the dynamic was that I was a, a person who was a terrible failure and, and, to see my life changed now, uh, happy with my family and a career that's moving forward and some of the things that I've accomplished in the period of my sobriety, people are curious and asking about my life. And awesome. it's, it's good for me, but also kind of awkward too. As a, as a type five, my inclination is to watch others, to observe others, to be interested in others and leave myself out of it, to reveal as little about myself as humanly possible. So the discomfort for me then is having people who are interested and having things to say about it. I would rather shift the attention back onto them and understand what others are going through just because it's more comfortable for me. And so getting myself to open up, um, what I did a couple of episodes ago in sharing my story was far outside my uh, normal way of being in this world for sure. Um, yeah. And when I go home with my family, that's exacerbated too, because despite the changes that I've made in my life and all these wonderful things that are happening for me now, it still feels strange to talk about them to people who knew the other side of me for so long. You know, I worry that, somewhere in the back of their minds, people are seeing through the good things and remembering a more unhealthy version of me, which makes me question then myself. And, and it's a challenge for me in that way. Um, I appreciate your really thoughtful interpretation, Bob, of the way the witness self factors into this, because through practice, I am certainly a lot more aware that I am having those, those feelings and those experiences. I can, at least put my finger on them, realize what's happening and kind of sit with it. Um, I will say too, that part of what makes the experience of talking about myself, even when I have good things to say so uncomfortable is that uh, I being aware of the potential bad feelings that are lingering under the surface. and, And normally I would just stuff all that down 
allowing myself to see it and, and see my own fear still moving inside of me is a challenge, but uh, it's all part of the growth process to sit with that and be okay with it. Um, so you're talking about in, in relationship with your family members. Yeah, in relationship with my family members, seeing my fear of explaining myself and my fear that they're remembering the past. Um, you know, my family and I certainly had some challenges, and I don't know that I conveyed this as articulately as I should have when I was telling my story, but even though things happened to me, a hell of a lot of it was my fault. You know, I'm certainly not blameless in there. I made a lot of mistakes, and a lot of that is stirred back up when I go to see them and uh, tell them about the positive developments. I remember the mistakes very clearly, and allowing myself to sit with that dichotomy is really hard. Um, finding time to practice, I, I appreciate both of what you are saying, John, your recommendation to double up on practice when you're visiting family is certainly a good one. And Bob, I also understand forgetting that when I go to visit my family, it's not that I don't have the desire to practice. It's that schedules are all messed up and finding the time is hard and I don't have my privacy. I don't have my space. There's so much stuff to do and so many other things going on. So many people who want my attention that I don't have that space to practice as much as I would like to. Um, and on a purely practical level, that's where my practice of, of mini habits really comes in because though I prefer to sit for long periods of time or, or exercise quite a bit, I can at the very least spend a minimum amount of time, five minutes of meditation and it's not as much as I would like, but it's sure helpful. And it allows me to continue that streak and recenter in yeah. really important ways. Uh, and of course, all the hours and hours of meditation, you know, that you put in beforehand sure helps, you know, not like you're going in there. You've never trained. I mean, yeah, you're ready to go. I must just be more knuckleheaded or maybe everybody's so glad to get rid of me for a while. That, uh, you know, the, oh, please go work out. You know, I don't know. But, but, you know, I'm kind of elder in my family now, you know, a lot of nephews and stuff like that. And the fact that uh, I meditate and work out, they kind of dig it. You know? like, oh, That's very cool. Uh, it's a little bit weird, but yeah. And a lot of them have uh, at least adopted the, uh, the workout ethic, you know. The, mm -hmm. uh, awesome. so, uh, yeah, and if you can't, find other family members that want to go work out, you know. Go, go work yeah, out. part of the story uh, that I shared was starting to go on walks with my mom. And so yeah. when I yeah. go to visit now, we kind of resume that tradition and I'll get her out on a walk together. We can have some really good conversations when we're out in that space, uh, out in nature, walking and sharing that. And that's kind of nice. Yeah, you know, and what you were saying, Doug, it's like no matter how much work you've done on yourself or sobriety time you have, when you go back to your family, it's like going in a time machine. You know, all the issues that got you there in the first place you know, are, are pretty much there and the memories that come up and some people, you know, haven't really changed that much and this or that, or sometimes they have changed, but the dynamics, are, but it really, it really evokes a lot of stuff. And in that sense, it can be a, a super rich time to practice and, yeah. and to work on yourself because it's all right, you know, right there. You know, all the issues are coming up and you can feel them and, oh, this, that, and, you know, let them go or just be with them without, you know, reacting to them, that whole, that whole thing. I'd, I'd like to I'd like to uh, say a word, uh, uh, Doug, about what you shared. It really touched home, and I think all three of us can relate to. It. It's implied in what you're saying, John, 
when you talked about that experience of going back to your family and they have this history with you of not so savory times and uh, how deep that can go. And I think all three of us have our own versions of that. I had a supervisor, Bonnie Badenoch, who, who uh, did a lot of work in interpersonal neurobiology, looking at what goes on in relationships in terms of our brain. And she had this phrase she taught me. She says, Bob, the amygdala has no time stamp. And, and what she's talking about is the, the kind of the, 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 uh, the brain repository um, of, of shame and certainly of fear. And, and uh, if you think of PTSD, certainly of trauma, it doesn't have any past, present, or future. It's just all present. And so I don't know about for you, Doug, but as you were talking, I was thinking that that, that experience is, uh, is at the very core for me of what I think of as shame. And it's, it's, the, it's the most unpleasant experience for me in and around my addiction. And it's gotten better, thank goodness. And I think all that we're talking about in terms of practice has helped to lessen its death grip on me, but that the experience, it still can be and was uh, pervasively of looking at myself through the eyes of my family, let's say, or anybody else that I imagined to have judged me. And it wasn't all imagined. A lot of it was real judgment. But then what that touched inside of me in terms of my own kind of, it's like an outsider view on myself. We've talked of it before, but it's just death dealing for me. And it certainly was in around, uh, around my attempts early on in terms of recovery is that I had so much shame that I could not not relapse. It's, 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 it's just like I had to anesthetize that awful feeling. And you just, I felt like you described it very organically, kind of like what it's really like. And family is, is the strange attractor for the deepest templates in our experience. Yeah. It's all there. It's evoked. And there's no timestamp. So in that moment, I'm just in this horrible feeling. And uh, it, it helps to have a witness presence with that because you can begin to recognize that when I share with you guys that evening where I sat alone with my loneliness, that was just sitting with it, watching it. It felt like crap. But, but I, I do know that, it, especially in active addiction, there's not even an awareness of the shame. It's like, what, me feel worried? Well, me feel ashamed? No, it's just immediately moved to substance, moved to altering consciousness. And so to hold that and be with that I think, I think our practice helps with that, but I also just want to name how incredibly deep and difficult that is to work with that material because it's just instant trigger like that of the deepest pain inside. And for me, it manifests again as looking at myself from the outside as if through the eyes of the accuser. It's like looking at the Sanhedrin and, and, uh, and the Pharisees and everybody else judging me. And they are me, but they're also them. <laughs> and so it's a very powerful one, two punch. Anyway, I just want to toss that in there as you were talking. It really resonated with that. Well, you know, uh, Pam and I, we used to go to this monastery in northern New Mexico. And um, Pam would go more than I'd come spend some time with her. And, we, you know, we meditate and do what you do at a monastery. And it was a Catholic monastery. But we, we had a friend who was the beekeeper, and she was a woman. And uh, she had this, I think she'd gotten a sunstroke or had some, a couple of things, you know, things that affected her brain. And she was completely normal in every way, except she didn't have a memory that lasted uh, two weeks. Anything that was over two weeks old would go away. So she was absolutely the happiest person, the most spiritual person in the monastery was the beekeeper, you know, because he just, you know, you just don't have the memories that are tormenting you with a shame and I suck and blah, 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 you know, all this stuff. And her boyfriend was like, you know, it's really a bummer, you know, because we get in a fight. And then after two weeks, just, I love you, honey. And, <laughs> 
He said, I'm still pissed. <laughs> I'm still carrying this thing, you know? So uh, it was just a really interesting thing to see. And, and when you were talking, Bob, and you, and, and you too, Doug, about the memories and, you know, that are so wrapped up. And I was saying, wouldn't it be nice if we just could, like, uh, mm-hmm. get a small stroke? And it was like, hey, you know, how you doing? I can't remember. <laughs> I think I'm supposed to be pissed, but I can't remember why. So anyway, I love you. How's that? You know, yeah. it's like uh, really nice. And it shows you how, how chained we are to, to our past. And how we have to find a way to uh, to redeem it, you know, and to transmute it and, and become uh, okay with it, you know. There's this idea in trauma theory that if you can be with me, Doug, you can be with me, John. If you can be with me and I recount traumatic experience, and actually it gets evoked in my nervous system. And so I'm actually in a traumatic state as I'm sharing with you. And you respond to me with compassion. You respond to me with care is that it actually will uncouple in the brain. There's actually very interesting studies about this. It'll uncouple that indelible kind of connection between memory and trauma because now it forms a new association. I literally have the image of train cars uncoupling. I don't know why. It's the physical image. They uncouple, and there's just a moment there that if you can catch somebody in high arousal, that is traumatic arousal, and be with them in an extraordinary, loving, calming space, that it actually will recouple that with practice over time to where it diffuses the traumatic experience. I believe the same thing happens with meditative practice, is that if I can hold what I held a couple Saturday nights ago, let's say, that kind of traumatic loneliness, and just be with it with as much peace as possible like that, it is, it is the, 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 the kind of dilution of the original trauma. Does that make sense to you guys? No, it makes, it makes total sense. And, yeah, and also realizing that, that you're not the only person in the world that has these feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, you think the only, you're the only person that feels shame yeah. and self-loathing yeah. and all of this stuff. Oh, my yeah. God, you know. Yeah. And I think yeah. when, when we kick into that, you know, because a lot of times in our shame and our depression and stuff, we feel so isolated, like we're the most screwed up, awful human being in the world. and Everybody else has got a leg up on us or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's really not true. You know, we all, we all go through this. We all suffer this. We all have our wounds and the stuff that keeps us back and keeps us sad and keeps us you know, anchored into old stories that may not be too appropriate for now, you know? And, um, yeah. And so that's, that's helped me sometimes when, when I get back down into the, the feeling, the pain that, God, do you think you're the only person suffering? What is the little kid, you know, and, you know, in, in Beirut or Afghanistan feeling right now, you know, it's like, and it's not trying to negate my suffering. Perhaps that was a bit, but in other words, it just, you know, connects. And uh, yeah, we're all striving. We're all we're all going through this stuff. So how can we, you know, open that big heart and that observer self where we can actually hold our differences and our and our fallibilities? It's it's a real it's a real practice. You know, compassion is to suffer with. And uh, when we, you know, we we've been always taught by you know popular culture maybe to live life in the in the shallow end of the pool. It's really hard to give ourselves permission, you know, because that's the thing that we're most avoiding, and that's where we you know, we'll find the most growth. John, I really appreciate what you're saying there in terms of stepping outside of yourself to see the perspectives and, and through the eyes of another. Yeah. Um, I think I have mentioned to, to you at least, maybe to Bob too, about uh, this book of photographs that I have, of portraits from around the world, and they have different places. It's, um, it's uh, Fiden is, is the name of it, and they show these photographs of people of all ages and genders and cultures from all around the world going through their experience of life. Some are happy, some are sad, some are wealthy, some are poor, some are in a very good place in loving embrace. Others are suffering horribly, but 
flipping through these pages one at a time and allowing myself to experience each of those feelings and see the experience that others are having is a reminder that I'm not alone. And it's an incredibly powerful one when I'm feeling mm -hmm. disconnected. Mm -hmm. Having said that, looking through that book is also a safe way to do that because I am, yeah. you know, sitting there by myself. And sometimes that's exactly what I need. Um, yeah. Stepping into a space with our families is a much more direct practice, uh, especially when in conflict with somebody, um, allowing myself to step outside and see through their eyes what they may be experiencing, understand those needs in a very direct way is another good way to step outside of myself. And sometimes that's exactly what I need to do, as challenging as it can be. Uh, so I appreciate that too and try to get myself to remember to do it that's one of those things that is built up over time too the more you practice and cultivate your ability to be aware of yourself you can realize when you're locked in your own head and remember to step outside yourself and see the perspective of another more easily more frequently and uh, get get the benefits often challenging ones of doing so i wanted to um, comment one more thing to bob on uh what you had Doug, said about Doug, Doug, can I interrupt you for just a second? Sure. Uh, tie a string around your finger on that next point. I'm afraid I'll forget a response to you, and I want to share it. I'll be brief about it, but hang on to that. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, okay. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I just came to me as I was listening to you. Is that that we talk about it in terms of levels, but I just got it in a different way listening to you right now. Is that one of the things that trauma does is it traumatizes our capacity to adopt a third-person perspective or even a second-person perspective. By definition, trauma draws me into a first-person survival mode. Mm -hmm. And so it just occurred to me that uh, Jung had this term, the opus contra naturum, the work against nature, is that meditation is a work against our, our proclivity to go back to the first person. So every time I can strengthen that, that third-person witness, or even for that matter, second-person engagement yeah. is like muscles to be developed over against that kind of regressive tendency towards the first person. That's all. I just wanted to comment on that. I'm just listening. I was thinking there's wonderful wisdom in what we're talking about because it's absolutely the third person perspective or even second person is the antidote of what trauma does to us, which is contracts us into first person only. You know, that actually fits perfectly with what I was going to say anyway. I, Bob, mm -hmm. I was going to comment on what you had said earlier about trauma and memory reconsolidation. There's a lot yes. in, um, yeah. in, in the theory of NLP, for example, or in yeah. a program like Profound Releasing that is so good for working with healing those kind of emotions. What it really does is <clears throat> allows you to experience, re-experience those emotions at the height of arousal when memories are most able to be changed and then change the association with it, bring in a yes. new compassionate association and that yeah bringing the witness in, bringing that yes. compassion in takes us right out of the first person tendencies of trauma and into a broader perspective that yeah, allows for it. healing and growth. That's it. That's it right there, Douglas. That's great. Thanks for bringing that in. That's, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and what you were saying, Bob, uh, uh, about the, you know, having the compassionate witness and sometimes a therapist or just a good friend. I mean, yeah. what we're, yeah, we're there sure. to be an auxiliary ego, yeah. you know, because when it's not our stuff, you know, we can, uh, I find it's easier to listen to other people and be compassionate. You know, that's why I was a good therapist. And Doug, I found myself like you. I have a five wing and I'm a six and, and, and Doug's five. But I, I, I became a very good listener. 
and ask yeah. really questions are really fascinating other people's stories. And yeah. quite frankly, I didn't want to talk about myself. I'm sick of myself. I just felt so <laughs> bad about it. The last thing I would do is tell somebody. And so people really would tend to like me because, you know, if you want to be popular, just really deeply <laughs> listen to people and ask good questions. And I, I, I you know, in, in therapeutic work and stuff, it really came in uh, healthily. But I found with you guys that, that I'm able to reveal more of myself more often. Mm, thanks, Doug. Uh, thank you. I, thank you, John. This morning I posted on Facebook a, a story about the drummer, uh, Steve Gadd. <laughs> and and uh, uh, it was very much this point is that Steve Gadd is uh, <clears throat> probably in the last quarter of a century, the most visible studio drummer alive. And so he's played with everybody from, from Frank Sinatra and Paul McCartney to Paul Simon and Steely Dan. And just the list goes on and on. I just saw him two weeks ago uh, at, uh, in Dallas uh, backing up James Taylor. And, and why is it that Steve Gadd has been the first call drummer all these years? And I actually included in the Facebook post a, a, an extract from an interview with him, is that his, his drumming uh, is in service of the music. And anybody that has ears to hear, that's what they want. Paul McCartney doesn't want Steve Gadd to be showing off. He has ultimate technique. He can do anything you want to do on drums. But, but Steve Gadd's aesthetic is, I want to play so effectively that I'm insinuated in the music that you don't even notice it. But if you were to extract that track, you'd really notice that Steve Gadd's missing. And so something about that, 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 that listening perspective, whether it's with others, like you're saying, John, or, or with ourselves, to be able just to be, have a quiet listening that doesn't draw attention to itself, it's very attractive to others. And it's very healing for ourselves. Yeah, and I had, a, I had an experience when you were with your family. I was going to a store here to get something. And I ran into this friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I remember this person as being very, uh, very open, inquisitive, calling people, you know, on their stuff and everything. Uh, I mean, she knew integral theory. She was meditating. She was really interested in mysticism. Had this really great big open mind. I really respected her a lot for that. Anyway, unbeknownst to me or barely beknownst to me, she'd become a fundamentalist Christian. Okay. And so we met. <laughs> and I'd just been listening to lots of news, you know, I have satellite radio, and I was like listening to this ongoing, you know, the, the game of thrones, you know, that is our political life now, just blood and slaughter and and, and, sand, and I'm just like, it was not, and so anyway, and normally when I, when I go, I have friends that I have been able to stay friends with who are conservative, Christian, Republicans, and blah, 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 a lot of things I ain't at this point, uh, but I have been. Uh, that because we are just respectful and no, you know, I don't get drawn into conversations that I know they're going to be useless and going to be train wrecks unless there's a really openness to explore. But a lot of times there's not, but I had none of those. I had no time to contemplate and get all my integral juju and then be able to listen, accept people where they're at. And it was just awful. And the more I said, the more worse it got, you know, and uh, it was just, and she was looking at me and she had this kind of, you know, like, well, I just believe in, you know, and it's like, and then it took me back to my cult days, right? You know, and I, yeah. I, I was, oh my God, you know, it's like, yeah. war, you know, yeah. major, major streams of my current trauma about the world, my country, you know, what's yeah. going on in our government and old stuff. And it was just like, I just couldn't say anything smart at all, you know? And then when I got home, I got a, like a text from her husband, like, dude, what is your problem? And I just texted back, I'm an idiot. And it was the perfect answer. And he just sent me back yeah, laughing. Yeah, that's what I heard. So, you know, I just, 
I, it, I just took it on myself. I blew that one, but it, but it was hard, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm kind of like known in some circles for being pretty integral and in that I can talk to different memes and stuff like yes. that. Well, man, sometimes you just, you know, you just don't got it going. And it was a real, and I felt so bad. I felt really hurt that I really screwed up and hurt somebody I cared about with my just, you know, just reaction, reactive stuff. And so anyway, I kind of had to repent my heart and try to clean up that mess. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff. If you know, if you, you know, if you live in Berkeley or you're a progressive and blah, 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 or you live in South, you know, or, you know, Southeast Texas and you're, you know, you went to Texas A&M and you're just a conservative Christian, and everything you just, your, your environment reflects that, you know, I mean, I know people who are that way who won't go to Austin, Texas, because it's just so freaked out by all the progressive stuff and people that are from Austin who won't go to college station or to Dallas. You know, it's like we, we we're starting to ghettoize ourselves and uh, families allow us like the, you almost can't escape family. Well, you can, and sometimes you have to, but many times we're called to be with people from, from other memes and, and uh, uh, it's, it's a hell of a thing and can really affect sobriety because there's a lot of, there's a lot of tenderness there. There's a lot of hurt and it's easy to get angry. It's easy to get upset and get a case of the fuckets, right? And then, you know, every relapse begins with a, a case of the fuckets, I say, you know, or, or whatever your, you know, your thing is. So, and one more thing that I'll shut up, but it's like, I heard, I was reading an article and they said, or it was on YouTube, a teacher that I respect. He said that if you watch 13 hours of reporting on the merit uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, that you actually showed more signs of PTSD than if you'd been there. Wow, you know, and so it just got me to think. You know, we see all this stuff, the news. You know, we got two idiots facing off, wanting to start a nuclear war right now. Our president and the other guy, right? And you know, it's just like as we're talking, that's kind of this, you know, the sword of Damocles that's sitting over us, and you know, and and I can't do anything about it. You know, I can't, you know, email my congressman or email the White House and say, you know, chill. You know, it's like it's this thing. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of stress and not just from our own, you know, interior things and our screw ups and our 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 grace, you know, our wound, the dumb things we did. You know, if we go with it, work with it, make us into the men that we're supposed to be or, or the person we're supposed to be. And that's a lot of stuff. And we yeah, yeah, yeah. either you got to. You know, I mean, there's different ways you can go, but it can become an addiction. You come addicted to the news and the constant outrage and the stress and the stupidity and the laughing, the cynicism, this, however you deal with it, or you can cut yourself off. So anyway, I'm struggling with that now. And how do we, you know, get enough? I, I don't think dropping out and just putting our heads in the sand is quite it because we're part of a, you know, we're part of the whole world now. But also you have to maintain your own centeredness and your own mental and spiritual and emotional uh, health at the same time. So any, any comments that you guys have? John, I really respect, really respect the uh, challenge you're dealing with there. Media in general and news in particular are masters at manipulating our emotional state and doing exactly what they need to do to keep us glued to those screens. And it has a powerful impact on our well-being. Those things affect us on a neuro, neurological, neurochemical level, keep us uh, on edge and quite frankly, ready to Byproducts, but um, it's really hard to balance that 
need to stay informed and be an important part of the world and do what we need to do with knowing where to draw the line. And I have uh, struggled with that myself. Um, the last couple of years, really, I have tried to put very deliberate brackets around my consumption of news media in particular, and it has improved my sense of well-being tremendously. Um, and it's a challenge that I really respect. It's, that's something that I would suggest to people who find themselves struggling with that is try to put brackets around it and limit that to, you know, certain hours of the day that you allow yourself to check or a certain amount of time or whatever, because it can, it can balloon. I had a period certain days of the month, maybe, you know, when I was uh, deep in my phase of addiction and relapse, et cetera, during that time, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, I was also very much a news junkie. I spent a lot of time glued to the, glued to the news stations on TV and reading as much as I could online. And I thought that it was a good thing to be so involved. It had a horribly detrimental effect though in the long term, because the other thing about consuming so much news media is that it's passive. You're not actually out in the world changing anything. You think that you are NSF5. I was particularly prone to this gathering information and gathering information. I thought it was preparing me, but it also limits you because you're not taking actions and taking forward steps and that's where the real healing power is in in recovery and changing the world and doing anything it's taking action and not staying in that in that place of of passive gathering um at least that's what i found and uh it's it's still something that i struggle to balance but the practice Mm -hmm. is helpful i love love your practical suggestions doug i really appreciate your thoughtfulness around that. I have a a very concrete example for me is that for, I want to say decades, I got up in the morning and worked out and read the newspaper. Uh, In fact, when I got into a stationary bike and even treadmill, when my knees gave out from long distance running, I would read the paper while I worked out. I did that ritually for year after year after year. And so I've had to, speaking of decouple, I've had to disconnect that instinct in the morning. And so for me, when I sit down, it's literally every day a decision not to open the news on my computer, but to open up I awake tracks, to open up meditative reading, to, to, to drop into meditation. So I have to ignore two things every day. And when I, when I don't do this, and maybe a few times a month, I don't know how often it is, I won't, I won't heed this morning. If I go into the, the sinkhole of email, and or the sinkhole of, of media, including the news, it's gone for me. I, it's, it's amazing to me. Nine times out of 10, I won't proceed with my meditation, or at least I'll short-circuit it, so I'm really stuck with a kind of a hurried meditation, which is an oxymoron. So very practically, on a day-to-day basis, I have to not open the news. And it's always right there. I've got an app right next to my I Awake app on my, on my stuff that says LA Times. Don't go there, Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, the Christian Science Monitor way back when, and it's a really good newspaper, but they said, you know, we're going to like 60-40, you know, 60% good stuff that's going on in the world, because there is massive amounts of good stuff going on in the world. And as the rabbi said, uh, one of my favorite rabbis, I can't recall his name right now, he said, there's more good than evil in the world, but just barely, you know, so again, a call to being responsible and, you know, be that tipping point, that little butterfly effect of doing good. But there is so much good and there is so much positive going on. Yeah. So we really have to balance that. And, of course, the addictive thing with all this kind of news that we're talking about, and maybe they're just reporting. A lot of them are just good reporters doing their job to get the information out. But 
there's so much good stuff going on too. And I have, there's a guy, a friend of mine uh, started a magazine called Ode Magazine, O-D-E, which is around mm -hmm. for years. And he was a, he's a Dutch guy, you know, really hardcore, just straight, objective reporter. And he just said, you know, I'm just sick of this stuff. There's so much good going mm -hmm. on in the world. So he really made it his, his uh, mm -hmm. task to find out the good things. And, uh, you know, you can, you can find that at the grocery store, connecting with, you know, uh, the girl uh, behind the counter, or the guy who's bagging your groceries, or, you know, you can just go, I mean, you can find it in, in the macro things, good things that people are doing to help and, and love one another and, you know, help animals. I mean, there's just so much goodness in people, but we have to kind of look for that too, just as we have to not avoid the goodness in ourselves. You know, if we avoid the if we avoid the hurt and the wounded, we're going to get sick too. And if we also avoid the 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 goodness and 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 the beauty that wants to come out of us, we're gonna we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get messed up also. So we're uh, and and I think I think addiction serves to to dampen both of that. You know, it, it, we don't want to we don't want to face up to to all the yuck and the pain because we think it'll kill us and it won't. And we don't want to face up to our goodness because then you start feeling, well, maybe I'm responsible <laughs> to do something, you know, and then we don't want that either. So it's, it's a good way to, uh, you know, short circuit both those uh, necessary parts of being a human. Oh, my God, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stuff. But, you know, what are you going to do? What other game is there? John, you've inspired me uh, to add another, add another item to my daily practice checklist. Um, years ago, and I haven't thought about this since then, uh, I read a book by a fellow named James L. Titcher, who writes a blog and has a podcast and is known for some interesting things. But he said the most important part of his practice and his daily routine is that every day he says to himself, help someone. Yes. In whatever small way you can. Yes. Maybe it's somebody in a forum online. Maybe it's answering a phone call. Maybe it's helping somebody across the street. Whatever it is, in some small way, every day, help somebody. And I think I need to add that back into my practice. I'm inspired. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, and then at the end of the day, you can also say, you know, who did I help today? You know, mm -hmm. and it's like, it's a good way to start, start programming that in. It's very good. Yeah. There was a study done out of Harvard uh, years ago that looked at the curative factors within uh, AA, within the 12 step movements. And they were looking strictly from a psychiatric or psychological perspective. So there wasn't any, um, uh, these are not, this was not a study looking at the value of believing in a higher power, for example. Or at least, no, I wouldn't say that. It, it, it would not assert a higher power because it was a scientific study, so that was a neutral thing. But what they discovered were two factors that they saw as central to what's curative in AA. The first one is a chance to come in. It's what we've been talking about, to share my darkest shadow and receive support. That was the first one, is that yes. sense of fellowship. But the second one was altruism and just the emphasis in AA on helping another person like yeah. what you just said, Doug. You too, John. And comes to mind with that is that that stuff heals. <laughs> yeah, you know, I used to have my clients, well, I don't like to go to meetings, you know, it's like, uh, I don't want to hear so, you know, and it's like, well, you know, it's not always, a meeting's not always you talking about yourself, but listening with an open heart yeah. to somebody talking about their suffering and that, is that maybe that's all you're supposed to do that night. Or, you know, and, and, and that is also one tremendous uh, yeah. um, power of, of AA. And by the way, there's good meetings and bad meetings, okay? You know, I used to tell people, you know, you got to shop around. And I was in the Bay Area. It's like, oh, my God, there's such a 
a plethora of, of AA meetings, you know, and so you find the one that you really feel resonates and, you know, and, and make it your home group, et cetera. Like in Wayne County, there's one meeting, you know. <laughs> but of course, now there's so many, there's meetings online and stuff. Anyway, so just you know, just a plug for the essential uh, nobility and, and goodness and uh, of AA that through all, you know, just admittedly screwed up people have, have kept the, the vision alive of, of serving and helping one another and taking responsibility for their past and for their addictions. And the same very noble thing. Same thing applies uh, in our Facebook group too. You don't necessarily have to share anything, but show up to that Facebook group, um, integralrecoveryinstitute.com slash community and read some of the posts. You're helping other people heal and encouraging, you're, you're doing your part there to heal yourself and heal others just by being present to listen, to observe that. And the same thing applies with our families. When we go home to visit, we take another perspective just by allowing ourselves to be present, to really listen and see things from their perspective. That can be healing profoundly so for everyone. Well, I guess that's about time to wrap this episode, yeah? Uh, We love you all. And I heard somebody, I'm on this uh, Radical Recovery Summit coming up. And we did an interview and they quoted me, they took something out of our conversation, that if you do the work, you'll get better. You know, if you do the work, you'll get better. And I said, that's pretty smart. I said that, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, so if you work hard and show up and you're, you know, you know, with the vulnerable, vulnerability and the, the, the uh, integrity and the courage of my two brothers here, uh, Thank you, then we'll get better and the world will be better. Okay. So anyway, love you guys. Thank you so yeah. much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit IntegralRecoveryInstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.